arriving in U.S. mail from St. Louis in the original de Havilland DH-4 biplane and 10 bulky gunny sacks are the combined audiobook renditions and supplemental background information as presented in podcast form by moi, me, Robert P. Fitton. Good evening to one and all, wherever in the galaxy you make your home. For your help. Don't thank me. You're both under arrest. Seven counts. You've got nothing, McGarrett. I've got you, Johnny. With a lock on it. Book him, Dano. Hey, I've never seen it before. Book him. I just run this place a week ago. Book him. Oh, you guys must have planned this. You're trying to frame me. Book him! Book him for receiving, pushing, and possession. And if we get lucky, maybe murder. Who faked on me? Harry, in your lousy business, your best friends are your worst enemies, and we found a friend. Chen, get this down to the lab for analysis. Let's go. You shoved her off the terrace! You beat her up and then you killed her! Daniel, take him out of here. Book him. Murder one. As you did. No apologies, Mr. McGarrett. No regrets. Thank you for your help. Don't thank me. You're both under arrest. Book him. Thanks, Kono. Get him out of here and book him. Somebody is about to be booked in the murder of Brad Davis. You've been listening to the original Hawaii Five-O with Jack Lord as Steve McGarrett in his signature order, Book Him, Daniel. In this episode of Murder at Toby Lake, Jones has reached his level of patience with the bombastic relic Jerry St. Clair. Jerry is linked to the disappearance of material witnesses, the Nickerson, and Jones is concerned that Amy Pollard does not have an alibi for the Davis murder. Even more troubling is the possibility of Coco and crime boss Albert Fiore being involved in Davis's death. And the ever-annoying Zoe Wilmot has a closeness to Pollard that's very unusual. And that bothers Jones. Jones is trapped in this episode quite a bit with Jerry St. Clair. Not good. Here is episode three of the Jerry St. Clair Show. Murder at Toby Lake begins now. Murder at Toby Lake by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 11. Gallagher, in a sports shirt and cockies, lifted his coffee cup at the Colonial House. More coffee, Father? asked Franny. Ortiz hit a walk-off last night, Franny, said Jones, looking up from the paper. Well, the twins were asleep with the switch when they let him go. What's his average, Franny? 305. Slugging? 604. She looked at Gallagher. Next, he's going to ask me for Sox tickets, Father. Can you get tickets? I'll see what I can do. My cousin Jackie works at Fenway. Jones stood and put his arm around her. Franny, old pal. Old pal, she said, nodding. Let me get you some more OJ. As Franny left, Jones sat down and Gallagher stared at him. What? That woman likes you. Jim, she's like one of the guys. Okay, it's my job to know people. Father, you're constantly trying to set me up on dates. Franny moved out of the kitchen and set the orange juice on the table. I'll talk to Jackie tonight, Father. Third baseline, said Jones, grinning. How about the clubhouse seats with the team? That'll work. She smiled and then jabbed her finger into his shoulder. What about Davis? Who killed him, Matthias? Well, it wasn't Pollard. She owned the gun, right? Asked Franny, moving toward the next booth. You have to put her in there at the time of the murder, and nobody can. Franny nodded and held the order pad to take the next order. Jerry implied that Hamilton Fletcher was involved, said Gallagher. Jones was about to answer when L.G. Bentley and his secretary, Dolores Reed, entered the colonial house. He caught sight of Jones and moved down to the back booth. 
Dolores waved as she sat in a booth up front and placed orders with Franny. Good morning, Father. LG, said Gallagher standing. He shook LG's hand. How are things going, LG? I have a court order in my briefcase for Jerry St. Clair. Dolores told me he never came back to the Marlboro last night. Rebecca said he checked in with the paper, but he wouldn't say where he was going. Oh, no. What's the matter? asked LG. He's headed to Boston to look for Coco. LG paused and thought. Is he going to talk to Fiori? Jones nodded. Well, I'm sure he'll get what's coming to him, said Gallagher. LG gave him a double take. I understand you're going to enter the ring out of retirement, Father. Yes, after I see the chiropractor. One question. Yes, Counselor. According to George, Paul had tested positive for firing the gun. Yet it appears to this humble, small-town lawyer that she was not at the house at the time of the murder. She says she was in her apartment, but no witnesses. Here's what I need you to do. Ask her if she was watching TV and what was on. Was she listening to the radio? Get my drift? Yeah, I can do that. Thanks, LG. Oh, and by the way, I'll reiterate that Hamilton fully understands this blowhard St. Clair tied you to the article with no basis. If you wish to be a part of the St. Clair lawsuit, let me know. Jones shook his head. LG, again, I just want him out of town. Jones took the turn at Sal's grill as Gabe's name appeared on the phone. Here's what I have, Jones. Word is Lane got money to fudge the gun test. I don't trust Lane, but why would he rig the gun test? For cash, he would. I see your point, Gabe, but proving it is another thing. Jones drove over the drawbridge at Hanson's Marina. Somebody crossed Toby Lake by kayak. I'm convinced of that. Late afternoon, they had all the time in the world. Jones arrived at the lake house near noon. Wilmont's white Audi was parked next to three cabins along the street, and Tully's police cruiser was gone. Jerry St. Clair's attitude bothered him as he drove slowly past the abandoned Nickerson cottage. Talking to the Nickersons could have expanded his own knowledge of the Fiori connection to Davis. He stopped the Jeep, did not see Wilmont in the pine grove. He opened the Jeep door and headed for the Audi. A flashy green 10-speed bike was balanced on a rack strapped over the rear bumper. Fitness magazines and a tennis racket were scattered over the rear seat. A woman's fitness club sticker was neatly sealed over the driver's side window. Between the pines, he spotted Wilmont dragging the kayak across the sand and toward the water. He immediately broke into a run toward the beach. Zoe! Zoe! She dropped the kayak and stood upright. Do you always make it a habit, Mr. Jones, of sneaking up on people? Yes. Leave me alone. What are you doing here with the kayak, Ms. Wilmot? Jones slowed as he reached the beach. Doing the test that you should have done if you were so smart. Ah, the lady listened to me. Don't ingratiate yourself. What about the paddles? He asked. Don't be any more insulting than you already are. Jones leaned toward the kayak. Suppose you're destroying evidence. Oh, so it's back to making me the killer again. She rounded the kayak and strutted in her cut-off jeans and olive top. Her legs and upper body were lean and muscular. She picked up a kayak paddle from inside the craft. To reiterate, I had nothing to do with Brad's murder. Keep calling him Brad. And you keep being a pain in the butt. He watched her slip in the sand and nudge the kayak again. I think you're in the middle of this. Jones retrieved the second paddle as she slid the bow into the water. You're not taking this trip, coach. Somebody has to time it. With a subtle smirk, he climbed into the kayak. After she fumbled with the paddle and sat up front, they moved forward. Well, let's see what kind of shape you're in, coach. Well, I can see you're in great shape. What's that supposed to mean? Why are you so defensive? She didn't reply and began a systematic paddle regimen away from shore. Jones checked the watch and did not paddle, but was surprised how fast she was able to maneuver the kayak. Well, you're doing fine there, Wilmont. Aren't you going to contribute? Well, I'm thinking about it. She stopped and tried to stand, but almost lost her balance. Jones snickered. You are exasperating. Well, good, said Jones as he began paddling, and she fell back in the seat, pursed her lips, and began again. Very quickly, the kayak formed a V-pattern across the smooth lake. 
Wilmont rowed rhythmically and did not appear to tire. Her well-toned muscles, steady motion, and the fitness magazines across the Audi's front seat told Jones she was much more physically adept than he had first thought. She was not even winded as the kayak steadily cut across the waters further away from the lake house. The lake had a fresh water odor and peepers chirped near the swamp. Midway across the lake, his watch hands slipped past the six-minute mark. Sweat built up on Wilmot's olive tank top as her muscles tensed during each stroke. Six minutes. You are timing this. Sure. And I don't know why you're down here anyway. And why were you snooping around the kayak? Before she could answer, something puckered and pierced the water behind the kayak. Down! With a distant rifle crack, several more bullets hit the water. Wilmot stopped paddling and looked unhinged. Jones leaped forward and his cell phone went flying into the water and sunk. He pushed her down in the kayak. He shielded her body as more shots echoed around the lake and surrounding ridges. They're after me! Who? Her heart beat under his chest. She had the scent of a fresh body wash. We're sitting ducks out here. I knew it. A bullet pinged the kayak and water leaked inside. Who's after you? Nobody. During the interlude in the shooting, Jones remained over her body and closed his eyes as the peepers screeched louder as the kayak drifted toward the spillway ahead. He plugged the bullet hole with a piece of a plastic bag. Amy Pollard was framed with her own gun and the DA's in on it. You want to tell me about that? He looked into her dark eyes as she slowly turned over in the dim light. Her body was firm and warm. Would you kindly get off of me? Oh, sorry for saving your life. Stay down. What direction did the shots come from? She asked. Jones furrowed his brow and looked up, but was hesitant to lift his head over the edge. I don't know. We're heading toward the spillway. They're trying to scare us. Her face was pale and fearful. That wasn't just an attack to scare us, Jones. Who fired the shots, Zoe? Jones grit his teeth, but she did not reply. My guess is Albert Fiore's people. Do you know Fiore? I didn't personally. Oh, so we wait, Ms. Wilmot. He pushed his hands against the bottom and turned over. She rolled slightly and he clasped his hands behind his head. The cooling clouds swept across the lake. Her warmer skin touched his legs as they neared the spillway. She spoke in a softer voice. Tell me about this guy, St. Clair. Does he know where Irene and Gus Nicholson have gone? Well, I'm sure he does. Jones pinned the woods above the lake. You know, Zoe, if I were the police and I saw you looking through those bushes by the spillway yesterday, I'd categorize you as a suspect. Well, you were up here, too. Ah, oh, you're right. I killed him. What was in the bushes? The birds and bees and poison ivy. Where were you before you arrived at the Fletcher party? In my room at the Marlboro Inn, I have witnesses. Really? What about Brad Davis? You knew him. She sat up and her face tightened as she leaned toward him. Yeah, I knew him. Stay down, he said, holding her wrist. Stay down. My students were assigned to do written journalistic accounts for Brad. Okay. He continued to hold her wrists. Each student chose a professor. Unfortunately, Amy chose Brad Davis. I tried to dissuade her, but she chose Brad Davis. And fell for his charms, said Jones. Let me tell you something, coach, and you can take this for what it's worth. I would simply back out of this. Some things are not worth getting involved in. She looked down at his hand still around her wrist. Jones slowly released his grip. Brad Davis is better off dead. Well, that's a strong statement. I can guarantee the DA is going to question you in great detail and then try Amy Pollard. She wrapped her arms around her chest and looked up at the clouds. I'm cold. Zoe, did you hear what I said? I'm aware of that. She moved closer. Why do you think I'm out here? Well, that was my original question. She rubbed her arms in the cooler air. We can't go back to the cars. They could be there. You keep saying they. Whoever shot at us. I wish I hadn't lost my cell. Mine's in my car. We're going to have to hike to that spillway and then get to a phone rather than hike back to your car. Oh, we agree on something? This could be a moment of great historical significance. He leaned toward her, and she looked uncomfortable. You need to tell me about who fired that gun. I think you know who fired that gun. Mr. Jones, somebody was trying to scare us. And let me tell you, Wilmot, they did a pretty damn good job of it. Murder at Toby Lake by R.P. Fitton Chapter 12 
Prince William Priest Attacks Kidnappers, byline by Jerry St. Clair. Prince William. In a complication to a murder case of a Hamilton College professor, Bradley M. Davis, a Roman Catholic priest assaulted two unidentified men in a Prince William jail cell. The two men later aided in the escape of John S. Stefani of Prince William, was being held as a person of interest in the Davis murder. Father James Gallagher, a former prize fighter, utilized his professional abilities to attack both men, including the possible breaking of one man's jaw. Father Gallagher could not be reached for comment. A call by this reporter to the bishop's diocesan office has indicated an investigation of Father Gallagher. District Attorney Herbert Lane says, I was shocked by the pugilistic actions of a Catholic priest at the Prince William Police Department. Story to be continued. I just read it, Jim, Jones said into his cell phone. He held the morning paper as he sat in the bottom bleachers of the empty gym, heated in the summertime. I am appalled at this smear. Matthias, those men were kidnapping Coco. I made repeated calls to the Enterprise, but no one knows where this imbecile is gone. I'll wring his neck. And what about Coco? Well, I'm greatly concerned about Coco. LG is filing a lawsuit on behalf of Hamilton Fletcher against Jerry St. Clair. If you need me to speak about Jerry St. Clair, I'll do it. Thank you, Matthias. I already have parishioners calling the rectory. The truth will come out about this clown, Jim. Thank you. I'll talk to you later. Jones stood and walked toward the locker room door. Carl Rogers talked to one of the custodians inside. When he saw Jones, he followed him through the locker room. Hey, where you headed, coach? Oh, I have a personal errand. Well, ah, I know what that means. Jones stopped and put his hands on his hips. Carl... Why is it everything personal is translated to a woman? How are you doing with that murder? Well, they're still holding the student, Pollard. I read it was her gun, said Carl. Let me caution you, Carl. Don't believe everything you read in the Enterprise. Tom McGill is away, and the guy running the paper is a nut job. Carl grinned. I'll remember that. He made it sound like the priest was a knockout artist. I know Gallagher personally. He was trying to stop a kidnapping. You and I would have done the same. As he entered his office, he faced the poster-sized black-and-white photo of Lark looming over his office and a color photograph to the right after a basketball game last year. His aging predecessor had a huge grin and his white brows were raised above his glasses. Well, at least Lark is out of town and not involved in this. You know, we lost that game and Lark was talking about the jump shot competition in 1967. Do you have any theories other than Pollard? asked Carl, folding his arms across his sweatshirt. No, said Jones, not wanting to get into the case. Aren't you hot in that sweatshirt? Well, you sweat and keep in shape. Yeah, I guess that's true, said Jones as his desk phone rang. Jones. Science. Tried yourself. Oh, Tom, thank God. Why, are you still in Hamilton? Jones stood. Do you have any idea that all hell is broken loose down here, Tom? Carl stared at him when he raised his voice. Number one, there was a murder, and that nincompoop Jerry St. Clair runs a front-page story linking Hamilton Fletcher to the murder scene. Are you kidding me? I specifically told him to let the girls run the paper, and he was to oversee the operation in an editing capacity only. Tom, LG is suing him on behalf of the Fletchers, and I may join in that suit because he linked me to his sensational journalism. You tell me. And he defamed Jim Gallagher this morning on the front page of the paper. Look, I'm flying back when I get to Bangor. Then I'll fly right to Municipal Field in Prince William. I'll call him before I leave Maine. Well, good luck. Nobody can find him. Listen, he said, turning to Carl. Carl, I need to talk in private. Sure, coach. No problem. My family's expecting me in Seattle in the next few days. No set timetable. So I'll see you when I get back. Jones saluted him as Carl, still limping, hobbled back into the locker room. The last thing Jones needed was his assistant coach injured before the season even started. You there, Matthias? Yeah, I'm here, Tom. Coco was arrested. For what? Not the murder. That's not the worst of it. Two of Albert Fury's thugs kidnapped him. Gallagher tried to stop the abduction, and Jerry twisted into an attack. I go away, and you're right. All hell breaks loose. But, Tom, somehow... Jerry knows things, like somebody has clued him in. Well, he was at one time a great reporter in Philly. He knew how to sell newspapers. I worked for him. Well, I'm sorry for that fact. I'll talk.
Jones walked out of the wireless store. His phone immediately rang. Where have you been? I had to get a new phone, George. Jones remembered what Gabe had told him about bringing in the police. Well, I've been dealing with that Merkel Brown all morning. Well, maybe she'll resign. No such luck. Kevin and I have some background information on Davis. And? Davis was having one long joyride. He even had access to a yacht at the marina. My take is that Hamilton came over to the lake house to nail Davis's hide. Well, I'm sure of that. See, there's more to this than just the Fletcher prestige at the school. Davis was researching genetically altered bacteria, a money-making application in agriculture and medicine, and a hundred other uses. Well, it makes sense. Diversifying their paint profits, according to Malcolm Hayes, the Fletcher controller. That's why the Fletchers put up with that wild man Davis stuck him out at the lake house. How do you know all this? Ham. Talk to him this afternoon. Now what? Well, it goes from bad to worse, said Strickland. Davis was a party boy and linked up with... Albert Fury. Yes, that's right. I need to talk with Captain Kendall at the marina. One of Hamilton's yachts, the Pride of the Hill, was birthed there. Party boys had unlimited use. Well, McGill is on his way home. He just called. Jones maneuvered his jeep into the gravel lot in front of the unpainted harbormaster's shed, overlooking the rock jetty to the Atlantic. He climbed the wood stairs upward toward the door. Jerry St. Clair, in his wrinkled blue suit and hat, stepped out between the buildings. Rise to see me, Jones. What the hell did you do to my friend, you moron? He grabbed Jerry by the lapels. Only report the facts. You twist the facts? Get your hands off of me or I'll sue your ass. You're not suing anybody. Now get lost. He did not tell Jerry he had spoken with McGill. What's the matter? Are you afraid the story's going to get a little bit more ink? Why are you here, Jerry? Another hit job on somebody else in town? Information, pal. And information sells newspapers. Oh, so that's it. Now I get it. He marched ahead of Jones toward the door. Back off, Jerry. McGill is already upset with you. McGill? Jerry stopped and turned. So, you ratted me out. Tom is sending you packing, my friend. As Jones opened the door, the captain held his pipe, stuffed with an aromatic cherry tobacco. Jerry raced by Jones and flashed some form of identification in the captain's face. St. Clair, the Enterprise, I think. Where's Tom McGill? asked the captain. Tom's on a beeline from Maine, said Jerry. I'm in charge. Ah, Thought you left town, said the captain. Jones closed his eyes in frustration as he jingled the attached bells and closed the door. How are you doing there, coach? I'm good, Cap. Cap, look, I have a few questions about... Copper's been over here, asked Jerry, a fresh cigarette in his exposed teeth. The last time the police were by the mariners when Wendell set up that radar past the drawbridge and had the defective radar gun. George had a lot of people to call to void their tickets. Listen, we're here to get the goods on Davis, the party boy, said Jerry. Captain puffed his pipe as he retreated into the kitchen. Look, Cap, said Jones, trying to outmaneuver Jerry. Brad Davis had access to one of the Fletcher yachts. Captain removed a cup of coffee from the counter microwave. Can I get you guys anything to drink? I'm all set. Did Davis use that Fletcher scow much? Scow? That boat is the 35-foot yacht. Just answer the question, will you, bub? Jerry, go back to Philadelphia. Captain sneered at Jerry and put more tobacco in his pipe. Pride of the Hill was the name of that yacht. Davis packed it with party animals. He would arrive in his Corvette and park it across the street. They'd all be waiting for him down at the dock, drinks in hand. When he came down the hill, they'd all start buzzing, especially the woman. He had real charm, he did. You seen Pollard's mug in the paper? Yeah, I saw it, Jerry. Ever see her party on that boat? Captain? She was only Davis's recent addition. The man always had women around him. Know anybody named Fiore? No, I don't know anybody named Fiore. You were about to say something about Davis, Cap. Well, the night he was shot... He left here like a bat out of hell in one of those small whalers. Went up north near the Pequonicut, to Henry's Hill. 
No sooner was he gone than he came back. I don't know what he did or if he picked up something. What's the timeline, Cap? asked Jones. Well, he left before seven and he was back here at 7.30. Seven and a half bells, good. He brought the boat in and he carried something up to that Corvette. He was parked in the grass there before the drawbridge. I don't know if that means anything. Well, it could, Cap. It really could. Anyone else around here, mister? Just that student's professor. Jones stepped forward. Zoe Wilmot? Tall, dark hair, dark eyes. He produced a wolf call whistle. <whistles> she was introduced as the student's professor. Was on the yard a lot. She seemed to know Davis because she'd always be talking with him. Not just flirting like the others, like she was arguing or lecturing, something like that. As a matter of fact, I'm sure I saw the professor on that yacht before the student Pollard was ever around. Are you saying there was some kind of prior arrangement? Can I quote you on that, Cap? Asked Jerry, pen in hand, ready to scrawl into the notebook. Well, if I were in court... Just answer the damn question, will you? Shut up, Jerry, snapped Jones. Yes, yes, I'd testify to that. Jerry bit his cigarette when Jones looked at him. Jones scribbled his cell number on the back of one of his cards and handed it to the captain. But Jerry stepped between the two men. Hey, Cap, you buzz me if anything comes up. If you see that woman professor around here at all. You guys think I should tell George? You tell George everything you told me, said Jones. I don't want the police left out of this. Or have any second-hand accounts. He said, looking at Jerry. Hey, where'd you get that harpoon? You steal it from a museum? My great-grandfather was a whaler out of New Bedford. Yeah, sure he was. The captain grabbed the harpoon off the wall holder. Why don't you make your leave, Jerry? Are you threatening me? Yes. Jerry wrote something on his open notebook as he left the shop and the bells jingled on the door. Idiot, said the captain. Jones shook hands with the captain and moved into the fresher air outside. The pride of the hill, a prodigious vessel with a glossy white hull and ample cabin space on deck, floated in the secure waters inside the jetty. Jerry threw a cigarette, unsmoked, into the bay and lit another. I'm going to drop a dime to the FBI. Yeah, sure you are, Jerry. Have him run a background check on Wilmot. You do that, Jerry said Jones, catching sight of a small boat racing around the harbor. The, cap the captain burst through the door. He held a bullhorn and trotted up to the rail fence. Now hear this. Boat in the harbor. Return to the docks immediately. He raised his binoculars. That's Froggy Finley. He's nuts. Another boat swerved out of the way. The captain handed the binoculars to Jones and again repeated his warning. Proceed to the docking area. Jones tracked the boat and saw the tall, broad-shouldered froggy, Aussie hat looped around his chin, holding a beer can, brought the boat around in huge circles. He's going to run that boat aground, said Jones. I don't know, but I can assure you that would be the last time Froggy will ever pilot anything in my harbor. That man is dangerous. Hey, Jerry, said Jones, turning. Now where did he go? Consider yourself lucky, coach. Yeah, Jones's cell rang. Gabe, have you heard anything? We just got a call. They have Coco, FX Jackson Plumbing Warehouse in Chelsea, near the Tobin Bridge. Excellent. I have some things to do, but I can be over there late in the afternoon around 5. We'll get him out, Gabe. One thing, Mr. Jones. Yeah? Don't call the cops. I wouldn't think of it. Do you have a gun? No. We'll get you one. Be over here at 5. Murder at Toby Lake. By R.P. Fitton. Chapter 13. Jones held the revolver upright. Gabe returned from down the long corridor, connecting the warehouse with the office. They have a side office up there, but there's two goons there, a third guy by the main doors. We're lucky they're not patrolling the back of the building, or locking the windows. Obviously, they're not expecting company. I say we go back outside now that we know where he is, come in through the window. Works for me. They moved through the dimly lit warehouse and exited by the storage room window. The trek around the back of the halogen lit building required climbing over a side fence, ahead with the front offices and brighter light in a parking lot beyond. Jones's Jeep was parked in a department store lot three blocks away. 
He crept with Gabe, guns upright, along the office window. One office up ahead had a yellow glow from an incandescent light. Coco, unconscious, was either drugged or beaten inside the window, probably both. His swollen brow changed the configuration of his face. His pepper hair was matted. They placed him on the rug along the wall. The door was shut. Bastards, said Gabe. Jones whispered one of his father's phrases that popped into his head. Be prepared for action. Gabe nodded and the window pushed open. A large smile covered his face. Jones squeezed through behind Gabe. Coco's cheeks were abraded and blood caked along his mouth. We need to bring him out front. I'm sure he has internal injuries. Gabe nodded and lifted the gun. As both men headed toward the car at a door, somebody began yelling outside. Gabe had already moved outside the window when Coco moaned. Jones moved back to his friend. When somebody jiggled the doorknob, he leaped into the storage closet and shut the louver door. You start messing with me and you're going to mess with the press, said Jerry St. Clair, and Jones's stomach jolted. I have deep connections to the political world. Shut up, old man. Somebody hit Jerry, indeed, shutting him up, and someone else, probably Jerry, fell to the floor. We're moving out, said another voice from behind. You want us back here, Randy? said some other voice in the corridor. Yeah, get Stefani out to the van. What about the old man? He moves or opens that mouth of his, you kill him. Scrambling ensued. In a mere 30 seconds, they were all gone, with Coco. Jones waited for some time, maybe 15 minutes. Then he slid open the louvered door as Jerry stirred. You stupid moron, Jerry. I ought to shoot you myself. Jones, what are you doing here? I took a hit. We were about to get Coco out of here until you screwed everything up. He looked outside but did not see Gabe. Bad boys are on the run, Jones, so cool it. You're a frigging idiot. I'm going back to New Hampshire. McGill will be back in town and you'll be gone. And nothing better happen to my friend. Ah, you're a nervous Nelly. Jones lifted him up by his suit coat. If I ever see you again, I'm going to... The Nickersons. They're in Revere. What? he asked, still holding Jerry's suit coat. How much are you paying them to stay down here? It's confidential. That's one hell of a case of obstructing justice. They need to be back in New Hampshire giving statements to the police. Now the first time I've had to slip some cash to snatch up witnesses. Jones took out his cell phone. Where are they in Revere? I'm calling George Strickland right now. Maybe you don't know the meaning of the word confidential. You know what, Jerry? I don't know how the hell you figured this all out. Maybe you're some kind of ace reporter, but you're going to land yourself in jail or dead. Now tell me, where are the Nickersons? Jerry St. Clair doesn't take orders from anybody. Jones pulled out the revolver and Jerry laughed. You're a bluffer. I'll make a deal. You want to go? You can go blindfolded. Jones was initially incensed, but figured Jerry would be taken to task very soon. Okay, but I drive my Jeep to Revere after I find Gabe. Who the hell is Gabe? You let me worry about that. So you're trying to cut the deal, eh, Jones? It's a pretty damn simple deal, Jerry. I go blindfolded to Revere and I talk to the Nickersons. Throw in a dinner at the Colonial House. What? You're a jerk. I like getting under people's skin. Oh, you've made it an art form. Come on, let's go outside. What about dinner? Whatever you want, Jerry. Whatever you want, said Jones as he moved up with a gun to the corridor. Jerry stepped behind Jones and headed through the front lobby. Jones found out whoever had transported Coco had left without locking the two front glass doors. Once around the side of the building, he called in a low voice for Gabe. My Jones, I haven't got all night. Jones just stared at him. My T-Bird is in the lumber superstore parking lot. Jones moved quickly back to the state road. That's where I am. When he had walked along the curve for about 50 yards, he turned to Jerry. You're a sneak. You followed me down here from New Hampshire. I have the goods on your Dr. Wilmot. What do you mean by that? asked Jones as he continued along the highway. I had my guy Gordy perform an A to Z background report for my eyes only. Jones veered into the store parking lot. Then he faced Jerry. What do you have? Jerry grinned. What do you think, I'm some novice, Jones? I only informed you of the bargaining chips in my hands. Gordy has worked for me in Philly for 46 years. 
Okay, you keep your information, Jerry. I can only tell you that your sweetheart is a very smart chickadee. First of all, he said as he reached his Jeep, Jerry's red T-bird was parked right next to the Jeep. She's not my sweetheart. Yeah, right. You're coming with me. I'll blindfold you with my handkerchief. I told you the deal, Jerry. I'll drive to Revere and you do your blindfold routine. And here's your alternative. I'd get on my cell right now and have George call Pinky Harris from the state police and arrest your ass. Pinky and I go way back. I'll follow you. Hand over your cell phone. I'm not handing over my cell phone to you, said Jones, getting in the Jeep. I'll follow you into Revere. Park where you want, and then you can bring me to the Nickersons. Hope you can keep up with a T-bird, Jones. George, he's going over 80 miles an hour on a state road. A window just got off the phone with a Revere police, Matthias. You never should have tried to get Coco out. Maybe not, but we would have done it if Jerry hadn't shown up, he said, trying to control the Jeep behind the T-bird in front of him. I can't drive like this, George. Great. I guess they had to get Herbert out of some private room at the Prince William Inn. Ah, he was staying overnight, was he? I'd rather not say. He's going to pursue obstruction of justice charges against Jerry for starters. Wait a minute, George. He's slowing up here at the Bayside Plaza. We'll call Revere right now and arrest this fool. I'll stall him as long as I can. Jerry skidded to a stop at the mall entrance, causing several people to scatter. He backed up quickly and the driver's door flew open. Jones parked next to him. As Jones got out of the car, Jerry was in the forward lane raising his hand. A yellow cab's tire screeched and veered toward Jerry. In the cab, Jones. No. Don't make no mind to me, bub. You don't get in and the deal is off. Jones panned the parking lot for the police and then lowered his head to get in the cab. Jerry slid in beside him and was pushed against the seat by the accelerating cab. Jerry yanked his crinkled handkerchief out of his pants pocket and secured it around Jones's eyes. Jones wondered if the police would see what Jerry had done. What the heck is on this handkerchief, Jerry, said Jones as the cab bounced across the parking lot and then moved forward. You're a little bit smarter than I thought. Don't ingratiate me, Jerry. Who killed Davis? Could be Fletcher. No, it's not Fletcher. Come on. Why do you think I had Gordy do the background on Wilmont? She's on my short list. The babe had no romantic encounters with Davis, but she was a frequent guest, like the captain said, on that yacht all the time. Why? I'm not sure. Yet. The taxi took several turns. Jones smelled the ocean through Jerry's cigarette smoke. Gordy sent me her background. He hacked it out of the college computer. Jerry, you're really skirting the law in every aspect of this investigation. I'm sick and tired of your not leveling with me. Jones, I've been a soldier on the battlefield before you were born. Sometimes you've got to take the law in your own hands to get a scoop. I don't care about your scoop. He fingered Jones in the ribs. Listen to this. She had a 4.0, grade point average. She was on the swimming team and the track team. So what? Even her high school references are perfect. Doesn't sound like a murderer, Jerry, or even an accomplice. You take too many risks, Jerry. I take that as a compliment, bub. Jones clenched his fists and shook his head. Who stole Paulette's gun? She may have done it and then come back to the murder scene. She's a weakling and you know it, Jones. Wilmont had the key to Paulette's apartment. Right. By the way, you need to pay the Nickersons a C-note to talk to them. You didn't mention that. Your choice. And 200 to me. Whatever you say, Jerry, said Jones, knowing that Jerry would have to square up with him once the cops arrived. The cab slowed and he heard the engine echo off a cement parking garage or canopy. Jerry pushed his shoulder and grabbed Jones's gun from the side holster. You've gone too far, Jerry. Give me that damn gun. Jones went to remove the blindfold. Touch that blindfold and I'll shoot you right in the leg. Jerry paid the driver and then helped Jones out of the cab. Okay, Jerry, take this blindfold off. Follow the rules there, bub. Automatic doors opened. Place had the smell of a janitor's closet. The taxi engine revved and faded outside. Hey, Harry, I'm back just like I said I'd be. Who was that? Over here, Jones, to the elevator. Give me that gun, Jerry. No way.
The sound of doors creaking open were different than the smoother front doors. He stood on a carpet inside the elevator, not a solid surface. The car was musty. Eleven beeps sounded as they moved upward. Again, the doors rumbled open and he walked onto a tighter carpet. Jerry led him forward and then to the left. Jones heard a beep and then the door opened. Is that you, Mr. St. Clair? Well, who else has a key, Irene? asked the man as he walked across the hard surface floor. Close the sliders. Zip up the drapes. Do you have our $100? asked the woman. Jones spoke. If I can get this blindfold off, lady, I'll get my wallet. He felt Jerry's hand moving into his pocket. In one swoop, he ripped the blindfold off and threw it to the ground. If you think I'm going to let you rifle through my wallet, St. Clair. Don't kill us, said the gray-haired little woman as she clutched onto her taller husband. What? We know you're kind. We know you've killed before. What the hell did you tell these people, Jerry? The man stepped in front of the woman. I'm not afraid of no mafia killer. Jones looked at Jerry and then back at the couple. I'm a resident of Hamilton. I coach sports at the college. Jerry ran forward. Don't listen to him. It's just a cover. He's armed and could kill you at any second. Oh, for the love of Mike, you idiot St. Clair. Jones turned to the couple and they leaped back as he reached for his wallet. Here, here's your hundred. The man stared at him, but the lady reached out and took the bill. Then Jones removed his Hamilton College ID and driver's license. He made up the story, and God knows why he made up this one. I want my money. You get Epis, Jerry. He turned to the Nickersons. Folks, I apologize for any misconceptions here. I'm trying to investigate the murder of Brad Davis. There's an innocent girl up in a jail cell in New Hampshire. Yeah, the Pollard girl. Don't be stupid, you old hoot. Pussy's talking about the Pollard girl. Well, I'm hungry. Where's that meal you promised us, Mr. St. Clair? Asked Gus. Hold your horses, Gus. The man wants to talk to us. All right, let's talk about the night of the murder. You, Gus and Irene, are the only ones who saw the car arrive at 7.30. Ford Focus, said Gus. Jones motioned them to the sofa and stood with his back to Jerry. She came over like she always did. Hanky panky, said Gus. We could see it all. Hey, you can't see ten feet in front of you without your glasses. Well, I saw the stripper. They dragged her out of the house. Professor beat her up, too. He beat on Amy Pollard last week. The guy was a brute, just like Gus. <laughs> she said, covering her mouth as she laughed. Oh, hearty, har, har. Jones grinned as Gus sneered at Irene. Did he hit Pollard on the night of the murder? Well, I didn't see it. What about the notebook, Irene? asked Jones. Oh, she reached into her canvas bag and removed a wire-rimmed red-worn notebook. I started writing down the plates when we came down from Concord a couple weeks ago. She set the book in Jones's hands and he slowly flipped up the cover. Six plate numbers were written in red ink on the creased white-lined paper. He immediately was drawn to Zoe Wilmot's Audi plate number. Over the next few pages, he counted at least eight Wilmot arrivals at the lake house. Dad English professor, said Irene, pointing at the number, 2K-6747. She's in really good shape. Never mind the shape, Gus. Why was she over there, asked Jones. Well, she came over there mostly with the Pollard kid, said Gus. Irene jabbed his shoulder. Now, I've seen her come over here alone. Usually for a short time, she had a briefcase with her. I didn't see that. I told you, you're as blind as a bat, Gus, unless it's a stripper or a female English professor. I saw her drive up in that Audi. Were they lovers? asked Jones. <laughs> Everybody was a lover. The guy was a sex nut, said Irene. But no, I didn't actually see anything. I don't know why she came by. She's in the thick of it somehow, said Jerry from behind. Jones turned the page and a black and silver matchbook fell to the floor. On the cover was the strip joint Wilmot had mentioned. The glass slipper, 735 Townsend Street, Boston, Mass. He opened up the matchbook, Desiree Paradise. Jones glanced at the book again. He had given Zoe Wilmot too much slack. He kept thinking about Coco's warnings about trying to take on Fiori directly. He felt a sharp pain in his right shoulder. Jerry reached forward and grabbed the gun. Irene screamed, Hand over the book, Jones. Oh, you're not going to shoot me over a book, Jerry. What's the matter? You don't think I have the nerve? You're already in enough trouble, said Jones as he pulled back the drapes, revealing the darkened ocean across the street. 
Jones slowly removed the page with the plate numbers so Jerry couldn't see him. Then he threw the notebook over the balcony rail. Why, you son of a bitch! yelled Jerry, and he held the gun and sprinted out of the room. He's not too swift, said Irene. Jones reached in the wallet and handed her another hundred. What's that for? You figure it out. Listen, can you two take the stairs? I can. What about you, Gus? Just watch me. We're going down to the basement, he said, taking out his phone. I don't think so, said the man he had seen at the FX warehouse. He held out an enormous gun, perhaps a forty-four Magnum. Another guy frisked Jones while a third guy removed the gun from Jerry's belt. How did you find me, asked Jones. Not your problem, you're coming with us. Those people know nothing. We don't care about them. Things went through his head. How was Wilmot involved with Fiori, and why did Davis take the little motorboat trip to the Pequonica River? The greasy-haired guy stepped forward and quickly checked if Jones had a gun. Okay, let's go. Jones felt the notebook page in his pocket. Where are we going? You'll know when you get there. Murder at Toby Lake by R.P. Fitton, Chapter 14 Jones sat in the back seat of what he suspected was the Lincoln Town Car that had been at the lake house on the afternoon of the murder. The man with the forty-four separated him and Jerry in the back seat. The skyline of Boston, Prudential Building, and Hancock Tower to the left reflected down the Charles River below. They moved under a wide, triangular cable bridge below the skyscraper lights. Nice going, Jerry. This shouldn't even be happening. First time I was in Boston was in 55. Who cares? You two shut up, said the 44 Magnum guy. Where's Coco? I told you to shut up, Jones. Ahead was a tunnel that went under the Boston buildings. Jones inhaled and shook his head. He gazed out over the harbor lights as they headed down toward the tunnel. He wondered why they had not been killed in Revere. Maybe Fiore was looking for information. The car zipped down the incline, and the artificial tunnel light flickered across the car interior. He leaned back in the seat. Wilmot was somehow connected with Fiore through Davis, and knew more than she had divulged. Even Paula knew more, yet a missing element plagued his thoughts. What was the connection to the stripper being brought out of the lake house? The driver braked softly, and then suddenly, ahead, a gridlock extended up a looping portion of the tunnel. As Jones looked over his shoulder at the bunched-up traffic, Jerry bashed open the far door. The guy next to him fired his weapon several times. Jones pushed open his own door and sprinted across the traffic congestion. More shots sounded, but not in his direction. He bent over as he slid along the cars. A truck driver looked down at him. Hey, what happened? Man firing a gun, can you get me out of here? Yeah, if we ever start moving, sure. Jones slid around the huge grill and climbed up into the cab from the passenger side. Crazy people, said Jones. I'm getting a ride into the city and I ran out of my friend's car when the shooting started. Yeah, I heard the shots. A handgun rested in his lap. I'm investigating a murder, he said, taking out the matchbook out of his pocket. Do you know where this place is? He gave Jones a strange look. Yeah, I know where it is. I'm looking for a stripper named Desiree Paradise. Jones did not see Jerry. The guy with the 44 got in the front seat of the Lincoln. The Lincoln beeped its horn and then moved between the stopped cars as if it were a police vehicle. Then it zipped up the exit ramp. Jones sat in the truck cab for the next half hour. The huge rig finally chugged out of the tunnel. Next exit, past the mall, and the black building and back set back from the road. He shook the driver's hand. Thanks for getting me out. Yeah, have a good time. Jones nodded and climbed down the cab. He leaped the Jersey barrier and crossed the road to the mall. The stupid move by Jerry may have just cost him his life. He walked briskly along the storefronts and the mall to the right. Behind one of the box stores, he spotted the black two-story building across the street. He was not optimistic about Desiree Paradise even being alive. Jones's eyes adjusted to the number of bright neon tubes. An odd air freshener or cologne filled the bright white corridor. An oversized transparent illuminated glass slipper above the theater lobby surrounded by frosted white light bulbs. Long glass cabinets contained glossy photos of numerous strippers in a variety of poses. Names of the strippers were, were painted in bright blue ink below the pictures. He did not see Desiree Paradise. 
He passed a little guy in a turtleneck and sunglasses at the inside door and stepped inside. A tall blonde was in the process of removing her top. The rock music was way too loud. He checked the bar area and seats around the stage. Jerry St. Clair, seated at a side table, lifted a drink to his lips. Jones raced forward. What do you have, nine lives, Jerry? You gotta believe you can beat the odds, Jones, and then you do. Jones sat in the adjacent seat. The blonde contorted on stage. I heard at least five shots. The clown doesn't know how to shoot a gun. Not my problem. Jones shook his head as if he were trying to remove all thoughts of Jerry from inside his skull. I checked the photos up front. No Desiree Paradise. Maybe she ain't here anymore. Jerry crushed his shoe against the glowing cigarette on the floor. They look real nice in the glossies, Jones, but their lives are a mess. During the wall, we used to hit the vaudeville houses, the old Howard Theater. You got a show for your money back then. Singers, comedians. George Burns was in vaudeville. This is raunchy. Jones tilted his head and stared at the blonde hanging upside down over her well-formed naked body. I didn't think anyone could twist into that position. Davis had the huts for paradise. Well, how do you know that? She could be dead or gone for all we know. Jones thought about Coco's warnings but opted to talk to the bartender. He walked along the tables to the long bar in the rear. I'm looking for Desiree. The little gray-haired man in black pants, shirt, and shiny vest slid chains to a patron across the bar and then sneered at Jones. Excuse me? He said, I'm looking for Desiree. Yeah, you and everyone else. He lit a cigarette and shook the match. Jones looked at the matchbox. She ain't here. Well, how do I find her? You like being alive? Is she alive? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Did you hear what I said? I said she ain't here. She ain't been here for a few days. Jerry stood behind Jones's right shoulder. He set his cigarette on the bar ashtray. How much scratch do you want, buddy? What? I said, how much do you want, bub? You can't afford it. He filled another beer pitcher from the tap and slid it to a young guy at the end of the bar. Then he grinned. You guys are amateurs. What about Brad Davis? Do you know him? The bartender's smile descended like a theater curtain. He bit his upper lip and extinguished his cigarette. Think it's time you two guys hit the road. How about giving us some goddamn answers? Asked Jerry. Jerry, shut up, said Jones. Let's go. Yeah, don't push your luck, old timer. Jerry leaned toward the bartender. Davis knew the stripper. Davis came in here all the time. You know it, and I know it. So does Fiore. Two plus two, bub. What's the answer? Four. Well, it's worth a C-note to you. Let's see the cash. Jones, I'm not paying him. The bartender nodded to a thin man in a t-shirt. You clowns are all done. You don't scare us, growled Jerry. We're just leaving, said Jones. The thin man blocked the lobby door. Jones looked at Jerry as a short, greasy-haired man with a linear mustache and a shiny blue pinstripe suit stepped from the hidden back door at the far end of the stage. A towering black man in a cut-off jersey strutted behind the stocky white man with no neck. Jones wished Jerry had kept his mouth shut. The little man scanned them with his beady black eyes. Back room. The man with no neck pushed Jones. Jones grabbed the black man's arm when he reached for Jerry, but a prodigious thud on his back pushed the air from his lungs and he collapsed to his knees. Jerry hobbled behind the guy with the cut-off jersey. Jones, trying to catch his breath, was lifted under the armpits and carried past several gawking patrons. His feet were dragged on a plush red rug, and they entered a small wood-paneled office with three wood chairs and a desk. Okay, now... You tell me, why are you looking for Mr. Fiore? You got a problem with that, my friend, asked Jerry. Hey, this guy doesn't speak for me. Somehow he had Jones's wallet. Jones, Hamilton College. He thumbed through the contents of Jerry's billfold. St. Clair, AARP, said Jerry. Shut up, old man. He reached back and lifted the phone without looking. Get me Mr. Fiore. Jerry started to pull out his cigarette pack, and both men whipped out long-barreled handguns. Drop it! What? What? My smokes? I don't know how many near-death experiences I can take with you, Jerry, said Jones. The little man waved his hand. Let him smoke. Jerry lit a cigarette and blew the smoke across the room. We know important people. Yeah, sure you do. The little man turned as he spoke. 
Yes, Mr. Fiore. Hernando. Yeah, I'm fine, sir. Thank you. I have a Matthias Jones here asking questions about Desiree and Brad Davis. Yeah, Hamilton College. And an old coot named Jerry St. Clair. Watch your mouth, punk. The two black men to the right physically moved Jerry to the corner of the room. Yes, sir. Sure, anything you say. Yes, Mr. Fiore. Goodbye. What did he say, bub? You don't worry about it, Gramps. He's running scared. Jones rushed up to Jerry when the other men didn't stop him. Enough, Jerry. Shut up. Hernando faced the black men. Put him upstairs in the conference room. Jerry was about to speak when Jones pointed his finger. And Jones, make sure Gramps here doesn't do any more stupid things. I have orders from Mr. Fiore and I'll enforce them. Jones stared out the window toward the early morning glow over Boston. Jerry had stirred and ran his fingers around the outside of the door. You know, Jones, we can bust out of here. Jones made a huge sweeping gesture with his hand. Go right ahead, Jerry. Be my guest. What are you, chicken? Jones raised his voice. Your problem, Jerry, is that you have no discretion. None. You just fly by the seat of your pants. Jerry was even louder. Let me tell you something, sport. You're the biggest pain in the ass I've ever worked with. Let's get something straight, Jerry. I'm not working with you. Somebody banged on the forward door next to the bookshelves. Jones turned to the right. Shut up. It's four in the friggin' morning, said somebody inside the next room. Jones squinted and moved up to the door. Who's back there? What do you care? Just shut the hell up. Coco? Jonesy, you're alive. Jones pulled open the door. Coco had a band-aid over his right brow and a cut in the corner of his mouth. What the hell is this? They let me call the club. What about Gabe? Is he all right? Yeah, he's all right, said Coco, glancing back at Jones. They drugged me. I don't remember anything, said Coco, looking at Jerry, still feeling around the door. What the hell is Jumpin' Jack Flash doing here? Jerry jiggled the doorknob. Yeah, well, you're the one who dragged us into this mess. Coco's face tightened and he rushed across the room. He slammed his hands onto Jerry's shoulders and dragged him back. Idiot boy here screwed up my getting sprung from that warehouse. Not my fault you've got thug friends. Coco held his cheek and slowly tapped it. You want to meet some of my friends, Grandpa? Because I can do it. Jerry leaned back and spread his arms across the back of the sulfur. Then he yawned. <sighs> we wouldn't be in this dive if we'd just stopped trying to play the ace reporter, St. Clair. You got everybody stirred up. Sometimes you got to stir things up to get the story. Jonesy, do something with this mental midget or I'll personally throw him out the window. Never mind him, said Jones as he steered Coco to the other conference room. Why are they holding you here and why did they smack you around? They tried to get me to admit what I knew about Davis. What do you mean? Listen, Jonesy, Davis was down here at the Slipper because of Paradise. Paradise saw something. I don't know. They had to kill her. Wow. Yeah, wow. All I know is Fury has people who take care of business. What do you mean? Come on, Jonesy. The guy who does the hit. He leaned toward Jones and spoke in a low voice. One of Fiori's guys. They had him kill Desiree. Davis freaked out. I think he really loved her. They thought I knew more than I did. I didn't know nothing. They want the Pollard girl charged. That's why Lane was paid off about the gun tests. Who killed Davis, Coco? Coco shook his head. You got me, Jonesy. I don't know. They're afraid this whole thing is going to come out about Desiree. Maybe other hits and whatever else was going on up there at the lake house. Well, that's understandable. Yeah, right. He said, looking out the conference room. Hey, where's St. Clair? Jones stepped to his left and he saw the open window. Does that fool realize they'll take him out? Apparently not. He looked down the 30 feet to the ground and then turned to Coco. He's got to be 80 years old. Look at that drop. Never mind him. I got the word last night. We're meeting with Fiore this morning. Well, I don't know anything. There's some dude named Kando professional. He was over the lake house on numerous occasions. Who is he? Who's this Kando? I'm not sure, but I have a theory, said Coco. As Jones looked down the pavement again, astounded that Jerry had made the jump. He shook his head as he looked back at Coco. Look, Jonesy, 
I think they're going to double-cross the guy who took out Desiree Paradise. Why? Everything will be erased. Clean slate. That's the way Fury likes it. Like it never took place. Does Fury know that you know this? Asked Jones. No. I want you to play dumb and I'll play dumb. What about Wilmot? She and Davis were onto something. I don't know what her game is. Jones began pacing. I'll tell you why we should be worried. With Jerry St. Clair on the loose, anything can happen. Why did Zoe Wilmot keep coming over to the lake house? Jones is trapped with Jerry St. Clair at the Glass Slipper, a strip joint in Boston. Jones and Jerry St. Clair are under lock and key with Coco, but Jerry escapes 30 feet up. Join me next time when we bag these lowlifes and get a page one exclusive. That's episode four of Murder at Toby Lake by R.P. Fitton, Fitton on the Air. All of my books are available in paperback, Kindle, and audio at www.fittenbooks.com or you can look at the list of audiobooks separately at pizzazz-pizzazz.com.